0: Hi, everybody. This is Under the Radar, and I'm your host, Frank Fear. I have a question for you. Who do you admire? When I was growing up, I can't tell you how many times people asked me that question, and I know I wasn't alone. I'm sure it's asked a lot these days, too. It's an important question. Well, my answer hasn't changed over the years, and if you listen to the introduction of this podcast series, you know my answer. They are civic activists. I've admired them over the years because civic activists value the public good. Each in their own way, they do what they can to advance the public good. But just what is the public good? While there's no definitive answer, I think Harvard philosopher Michael Sandel has it right when he says, it's about the ethical ideals we strive for together, the benefits and burdens we share, the sacrifices we make for one another, It's about the lessons we learn from one another about how to live a good and decent life. I like that. I think Sandel is talking about the concept of commonwealth, and for me, also what it means to be a great society. Our guest today lives those words, and it's one of the reasons, a big reason why I admire her so much. Her name is Susan McGuire. Susan is a civic activist. Susan also writes about the public good. You know plenty of people are activists and plenty of people write but few do both and few do those tasks very well the way susan does but susan does much more she's an excellent organizer she creates and leads initiatives she's a terrific collaborator and team member and she does heavy lifting as a support player now let me tell you you know this that's a rare combination of attributes i started working with susan about two years ago when I got involved in local civic affairs. And today you're going to learn why I admire her and why so many people in this area do too.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Frank, I'm flattered.
0: Well, it's great to have you here and also for the audience to learn more about you, particularly those who, uh, who don't know you now. Those who do obviously are gonna be certainly enriched by, by what you're gonna be offering. Could you start, Susan, by telling us a bit about yourself where you grew up uh, what you did professionally and and also a bit about what you're doing these days oh that's
1: a big question well where i grew up i was actually born in chicago because my dad was in medical school there uh because his parents lived there but i spent most of my childhood as what we used to call an army brat after fighting in world war ii my My dad uh, decided to become an Army doctor, and so my siblings and I grew up pretty much near or on military bases around the country. We settled for good in my teens when he was stationed at Walter Reed Army Medical Center in Washington, D.C., and it's a beautiful, place, wonderful place to live, and I never really left there until I retired. For over 50 years, I called the Washington, D.C. area my home, and it was there where I went to college, I met my late husband, we raised our family, and during my late teens and early 20s, the Vietnam War was raging, and I was drawn into political activism about that time. You know, when you live in that area, when you live near the nation's capital, you are really at the hub of of political activism, and at that particular time, young people were really driving it. but much later, my husband had a Navy career, and, you know, about the time the children were, um, you know, the oldest one was off to college, youngest one is still in school. And he and I, uh, after he retired, we entered business together. We were doing real estate sales and investments and settlements and tax preparation. And we did that for 20 years. Um, Ten years ago, um, I was widowed. Um, my late husband lies in Arlington Cemetery. Um and a, a place of um, great honor, but also great grief. Um, I live now in Bokeelia, Florida, on Pine Island. Oh, what was the rest of it? What am I?
0: Yeah, what are you? What are you okay, up now? to these days?
1: Well, I've always been involved. Okay, well, I've always been um, involved in volunteering all my life. You know, I for 25 years I did Habitat for Humanity and disaster relief uh, teams. Uh, rebuilding homes after natural disasters. Kind of amazing the thing you learn doing that. You know, I'm actually a pretty good roofer, but I've learned so much more than how to oh, install a roof or, or frame out a wall. You know, I've learned about loss and suffering. i learned about the human spirit and how people react to that kind of thing. It, it's, uh, it's something that never fails to clench your heart. You know, I'm aging out of that type of physical work now, Um, but there's always a role to play in improving the lives of others. Um, What I'm up to now, right now, at this moment of isolation, I am part of a group called Southwest Florida, Face Mask Crew, and we are making face masks for our local medical community. And to be perfectly honest, I don't have a sewing machine anymore. So my role in that is I'm the admin on that uh, site. Um, I created the fundraiser to raise the money and I am working at home with my tools that I've had from all my uh, disaster relief work, making the metal nose pieces Hmm. that fit inside the masks because they've run out of them um, when we try to order the material. So I've got a metal cutter, I'm cutting the strips, I am using my Dremel, to round off the edges, we don't want to hurt anybody. And uh, so I'm I'm sitting here making a couple of hundred, a few hundred. I don't know how long I'll be doing this. So you know that's that's something that makes me feel like I've got a role to play in the current crisis, larger than just staying home and doing the right thing. But um, I've been involved in a lot of political activism too. The direction. Our country's taken these past three years, and the support that he seems to have for his policies has just appalled me, absolutely appalled me. And I've always written opinion pieces or letters to the editor of various papers wherever I've been on topics of importance, starting way back during Vietnam. Um, and I continue that. I have in the Pine Island Eagle today, and possibly in the news press, although I don't know. Um, a letter to the editor, an open letter to Governor DeSantis about what I see as his failures to properly respond to our situation now. Um, I'm a founding member and one of the leaders of our local um, advocacy group. It's called Pine Island Roar. And I'm proud to say I um, I played a role also in communicating the mission of the Women's March. Um, We did door-to-door canvassing until that was suspended. Um, so right now, um, the only activism thing I'm heading up is a letter-writing campaign to our governor and, sen- and senators about our situation here in Florida and what we see to be um, uh, missed opportunities for them to take for our health and safety
0: as Floridians.
1: Um, so that's kind of keeping me busy right now.
0: Well, great. Boy, what a, what a long list. Uh, one of the things that uh, one of the themes, I think, in everything you do, I know it's a theme, and it certainly came through as you were talking there, is that uh, you're an excellent communicator. Uh, and that's extremely important, obviously, for anyone who gets involved in civic affairs, particularly in a leadership role, uh, because obviously people are looking for those who can art- articulate their thoughts and their hopes, Can you talk about your approach to communicating and how you, over the years, have improved the clarity uh, of your voice?
1: Well, I hope I've improved the clarity of my voice. Um, uh, One of the things I did very early on, I I guess I was probably about 20 or so, um, was in Washington, D.C. And we had had this group, and we were advertising, we were putting out the word that we were going to protest on the Washington Mall grounds and we were going to napalm the dog. Now, obviously we weren't going to napalm the dog. 20-year-old kids had no means to obtain napalm. The public, it's not available to the public. But what we were trying to do was create outrage in the community that, oh my God, a dog is going to be napalmed because we wanted them to understand as soon as they experienced that outrage that they could transfer that to the fact that we are napalming entire villages in Vietnam. Um, we wanted people to feel that. And if they can feel it for a dog, surely they can feel it for women and children. And there was one famous photo of a of that young girl, I'm sure everybody knows it, running screaming and naked after napalm, burned her skin and clothes off. We wanted the public to react to that. Well, that didn't work out very well. You know, we actually um, um, had a lot of people incredibly outraged at our, our thoughts about this dog. You know, and so we, I wasn't able to get, and neither were the people I was working with to a great degree, able to get that feeling to get through. But I think the wisdom... That comes with time and experience and failure and success tends to fine-tune all our voices. I've learned not to be as strident. I hope I've learned not to be as strident. You know, I've also learned in recent years that it absolutely must fact-check. Propaganda was once illegal, and, and lately, in certain circles, it's become the dominant voice. And we need verifiable facts and evidence if we hope to bring truth into the light. Um, I didn't used to regard everything; every item I read is suspicious. Um, but now I do. Um, I've talked to a few people um, that are experts in communication about how do we talk across this divide? Because that seems to be a nationwide failure. How do we? How do we? across this divide. I had an experience where at a climate change summit, I had a man said, I'd rather the whole planet be destroyed before I vote for a Democrat. But I learned to say, well, okay, but how about the Republicans? Don't you think the Republicans should be doing something? And then I could get him off of his anger and thinking in a new way. But for me, that was actually a great leap. Because we didn't used to have to do that. There used to be a time that we could talk about differences without the aggression that we're experiencing today.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, and actually, it uh, it feeds into the next question I wanted to I want to ask you, Susan. And that is, when you speak out, I mean, activists speak out. Um, certainly, there'll be pushback. Uh, not only speaking truth to power but just speaking out generally could you talk about your experiences with pushback and and how you've responded
1: well I have absolutely had pushback I have uh, I I have been named in our local paper um more than once as as somebody who they find uh unpatriotic um offensive um un-American um they don't actually seem to attack my political position. You know, they just seem to get attacked as uh, my character. Um, I, I, got a, I got a piece of hate mail. It actually was delivered to me. And I don't actually have a listed phone number or address. So whoever wrote it went to the trouble of actually doing some research as to where I lived. That's pretty scary stuff. Um, the most notable pushback I had, though... Was in response to a piece I wrote in the local paper, and it was also uh, sort of in the news press and the Naples Daily News. But this was about this. Was, I wrote it after Trump abandoned our Kurdish allies, and I said that this does not make America great. And I went on to give some other examples of the kind of behavior that is not making America great. It's making us small and mean. And uh, and a letter was written in response. And it actually labeled me my name as a spokesman and a leader of a woman's hate group, which I am not. Um, and it attacked my motives. It accused me of actual leading subversion here on the island. It called me a poison. Um, the letter was very personal, wasn't true, and the editor of the paper published it in full. He actually published that thing in full. When I was growing up, and I guess a lot of us my age, civics was mandatory in school. And we were taught that my rights end where yours begin. And a good example of that is I have the right to free speech, but I don't have the right to slander. And what that editor printed was slander. And there was an outcry about this. Locals were outraged that personal attacks on anyone would be printed. And I had a few people chime in and defend my character also. This eventually led to the editor's retirement. But he was sure to publish on social media that the hate that I personally created was responsible for ruining his life. That I was ignorant, a poison, and that I compared Trump to Hitler, I'd used the N-word in private emails to him. Stuff that's just simply not true, but not fact-checkable to somebody who's reading his social media. And I'm sure there's people who believe it. Now, in the case of the anonymous hate mail, I printed that on social media. In the event that that mail continued, I wanted to have a public record of it. I hoped that the person who sent it would read that and see that I not only was not intimidated, but that I wasn't afraid to go public with it. In the case of the newspaper, I did nothing. The reaction and the outcry from others accomplished more than anything I could have said. You know, there's an old saying that means a lot to me, and it says, you should never wrestle with pigs because the pigs will enjoy it, and you will only get covered in mud. So it's good advice, and I followed it.
0: Yeah, I know. (laughs) Unfortunately, I know exactly what you're talking about. That uh, similar situation happened to me recently, and you're absolutely correct, and that is rather than reacting um, yourself, if in fact, and, and I believe this, and I know you do too, you're working for the public good, and if you expressed uh, and worked toward the public good, then the public will come to your defense. And uh, that happened in your situation you described, and it happened recently with me too. Uh, as you were talking there, Susan, I I couldn't help think of sort of the not sort of, but the 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 big the big question these days. I think that that a lot of us are talking about, uh, and that is if we don't start uh, steering this ship in a different direction and soon. Uh, American society as we know it, uh, will be diminished, uh, significantly diminished, uh, particularly democracy as we know it, uh, perhaps unrecognizably so. Uh, I would imagine you would agree with that. Maybe I'm serving you a softball, but could you talk about that in terms of the direction we're going as a country and what we need to do and what happens if we don't change direction?
1: You know, I agree completely. I think democracy, as we knew it, as um, people in our 60s, has has already changed a great deal in our lifetime. You know, I I, I think back to um, the Republican platform of 1956 when Eisenhower was their candidate, and if anybody goes back and reads that, you can read that Republicans and Democrats were united on a few things, on many things actually. Um, And one of those things was promoting the common good. We believed back then in in a, a living wage. We believed in unions. We believed in things that would benefit and grow and prosper working people with the notion that a rising tide floats all boats. When working people prosper, the nation prospers. And so history has always been a big passion for me. And, and you look back at that and, you know, I could do a whole history lesson on this, but this changed, um, this changed after the civil rights law was passed because Republicans saw an opportunity to gather up all the Southern Democrats um, and who had been, I mean, had been a large voting block and corral them through subtle racism and this and it was very effective and this is not a secret this isn't a conspiracy theory anybody can look it up you can research it it's even taught in college classes now that this was a very deliberate and planned movement you know and very effective the deep south is mostly deep red now so this has been a change in our lifetime but as people pay attention to, to it and to what history teaches us, we can see that we are losing our democracy because we're giving it away. You know, um, history, if it should teach us anything, it should teach us to reject the rhetoric of the Trump administration. Uh, Lincoln, in his Gettysburg Address, called idea, called our idea of a nation based on the concept of all men being created equal, he called that a great experiment. And in his speech, he said this was a test if this could succeed. And we have great historical evidence of what happens to countries country that preach superiority. We preach that, only we call it exceptionalism, mm-hmm. American exceptionalism. You know, we have the historical evidence of what happens when countries put themselves above others. And nowadays, we call that America first. You know, what happens? History teaches what happens when we either subtly or overtly categorize some of our people as less than other people. When we get into this, and it's dominant now, when we get into this perspective, Even as citizens, but mostly as just the general population, that we can categorize ourselves as less than or better than. And this administration champions that idea. You know that many are less than whatever Trump's picking on at that moment. Uh, He promotes anti-gay, anti-Muslim, he uh, anti-immigrant policies. He's infamous for the name-calling. Of women and people of color um, are journalists, strong women. But the list is just endless, and history shows us where that goes. It's clear we've seen that. Open oh, up from from Africa, from Rwanda to to um, Eastern Europe, to Stalin's Russia, to Russia today, um, communist China, Burma. Look what they are doing to their minority populations there, all based on the idea that we are not created equal. If we lose our foundational principle of democracy, then, of course, America's not going to be the shining light on the hill. We are just going to be another third world country where the minority has the money, And the majority lives in poverty. That is not
0: the American dream. No, you're absolutely correct. You know, one of the things that uh, Kathy Fair and I have been doing recently is actually watching uh, YouTube videos of uh, uh, politicians of the past, Mario Cuomo in particular, and really dissecting um, the way in which uh, those folks um, like Cuomo framed his speech, uh, speeches, what he said, how he said it. And it's really in stark contrast. It was not party first. It really was the public good first. American ideals would lead, and then he would talk about what needed to happen in terms of, in terms of policy. And one of the things that struck me as you were talking, Susan, is that a lot of these a uh, lot of the reality we're experiencing today didn't come with a drum roll. It was done very quietly, uh, without much fanfare and it's sort of seeped into the, the well, so to speak, and now it's the water we drink. Uh, and that is really striking. It, it's taken 30, 40, uh, as many as 50 years to take effect, but it has a stronghold. And it's been, and this word has been used over and over again, it's normalized everything. In other words, uh, that, gee, that's the way it is. And people like ourselves uh, who've been around for a while understand that it wasn't this way before, and it shouldn't be this way before, and it doesn't need to be the way it is today. Uh, I misspoke, it, it needs to be the way it was. And then the question in our activism is how can we make it that way? Um, you know, in the intro, intro to this uh, segment, I talked about the question, or asked the question, whom do you admire? And one of the other questions that I think is enduring uh, is uh, what are your biggest hopes and fears? Um, as you think about where we are today as a society and where society might be going, what are your, your biggest fears and hopes?
1: Well, if I if I limit that answer to just where we are at this moment in the terms of our society, of our nation, I, I think my biggest hope right now in this moment of history is that Trump and the elected officials who count out to him are soundly defeated this November by huge margins. The country needs to stop believing that we are that way because more, more and more um, we're looking at one another as an enemy. You think that way you're my enemy. I think this way you, I'm your enemy and we need sound margins that reject this. um, You know, I'm, this march in the direction of fascism. Um, and that, that would be my, my biggest hope, that that people would recognize this so they could be rejected in large numbers. My biggest fear, I think, is that the opposite will happen. You know, we'll become repressive and authoritarian. Um, the majority of people will be under the rule of a, this power-hungry minority driven by money, if there's one big hope I have, is that we will do campaign finance reform and we will get this money out of politics and we will give the vote back to the people. You know, I I, I am very concerned that that the, the majority of the people will fall under the rule of this, what is becoming, as we've seen with the impeachment trial and nothing more than just an elected dictatorship you know like russia and turkey they have these elections these predetermined elections we know who's going to win there's nothing democratic about it but that is their facade and we will become we will adopt that facade too every four years we'll elect our dictator for the next four and that is my big fear that, that will happen because we have world models that show us that it can and that that's the direction we're heading.
0: You know, so well stated. And another point of, of reference uh, that Kathy and I have been spending time on is trying to get a better handle of what happened a century ago when the Spanish flu uh, uh, spread across the world. And I think 675,000 Americans died during that pandemic, 50 million worldwide, but what was interesting about what was happening in the United States, and when we say uh, we haven't been there before, it's not just in terms of a flu pandemic, but also the politics of the time. Uh, Woodrow Wilson with the Espionage Act and the Sedition Act, which made people were tossed in, in jail for saying anything negative about the government. Of course, we were World War I at that time, I know, but Clearly, society did not get entrapped in that approach. Uh, they didn't want that. And so after Wilson left office, we didn't get more of the same in terms of that kind of, and the thinking was suppress democracy to save democracy, which on the face of it makes no sense uh, whatsoever. So there's a lot, right. you would <laughs> mentioned, there's a lot to learn from history uh, and that uh, both the positive things we can do and also the missteps we've, we've made. Susan, I started this podcast with, uh, with the question of uh, whom do you admire? And I answered it myself. Uh, how would you answer that question? Who are, the, who are the people that you've admired over the years? And, and to what extent have you tried to, or how have you tried to model that behavior in your own practices? You
1: know, Frank, historically, um, my admiration Leans towards strong women because that's easier for me to relate to. Although I have to, I have to admit that I admired uh, Barack Obama enormously, absolutely enormously. Um, the first time I heard him speak, I was inspired, and my absolute reaction at that time—I'm ashamed of now—because I thought he's amazing, and it's a shame he'll never be president because he's black. Even back then, I did not have the confidence that our country could do the right thing, but yet we did. We did do the right thing by him, in electing him, at least, Um, and and that gives me hope, and he inspired me, and that, not just him personally, but the fact um, that our whole nation could take that moment of time and and do the right thing, and he actually was running against worthy opponents, not a Trump-type character. And we could still recognize the quality in him, and uh, and so that was very inspirational. But uh, some of the women, I mean, you know, I cannot fail to to look back at Eleanor Roosevelt in the context of her time. In the context of her time, she had she entertained both black and white, um, in in the Rose Garden. That was. You know, and she did it very deliberately. The fire she came under. She traveled the world. She was she championed causes at a time that um, you know that that women didn't have that kind of role and were not admired for it at all. Harriet Tubman, of course, you know, our all American hero, Maya Angelou, these trailblazer type women, fearless fighters, and they fought for the common good, for the common good. Elizabeth Warren today falls into that category for me. She is simply fearless. She's brilliant and she is relentless in her pursuit of justice. We need that kind of unspoken righteousness right now.
0: Boy, so very well said. Thank you so much for being with us today, Susan. Um, Just incredible comments and I want to thank you for all the great things you've done over the years, and I've experienced your good work uh, here in Southwest Florida. Um, So thanks so much, and thanks all uh, who have been listening today. This is Under the Radar. I'm your host, Frank Fear, and I certainly hope our paths will cross again.